Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your co-host, Matt Zemek. It's U.S. Open draw preview time. Saqib Ali, uh, my co-host, is going to preview the men's tournament. I'm here to preview the women's draw. And we welcome back Mert Ertunga, Murtov's T-Desk on Twitter. Uh, He's had a very busy life in the summer. Let's just put it that way. Uh, But he's been able to carve out some time for Tennis with an Accent for our U.S. Open preview. We're gr- very grateful to Mert. Mert, how are you? Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you back. Oh, thanks, guys. I've, I've been missing uh, you guys, too, and I'm really delighted to be back on. All right. We're going to ask plenty of more, more specific, targeted, detailed questions on the women's draw as we go along. But at the start, let's just get your general overview of the WTA Tour, some of the bigger storylines as you perceive them, Heading into New York, the final major of the year, of course, you know, last year, the U.S. Open was not the last major of the year. But this year, it's back to normal. Nature is healing, at least in this particular respect. So what are your big stories? What's your overview of the state of play on the WTA Tour heading to Flushing Meadows? I think, well, heading into Flushing Meadows, uh, you know, if you if you want to ask for as a general question for the 2021 season, the state of the WTA in terms of competition and, and, and uh, you know, the number of quality tennis players is, is at an all-time high. So I'm, I'm very happy from, from that perspective. Now, going into the U.S. Open or at various points during the year, you know, if you want to ask specifically for that moment of the year, then unfortunately, then the, the, the noun injury comes into play. So uh, once again, here we are going into the U.S. Open and we have plenty of we have some players out. We have big question marks on some big names because they're coming in injured or coming off of an injury or they've been injured on and off often over the last uh, 12 months. So there's this question mark of, of, of injuries, you know, hanging over the WTA field. That it's also hanging over the ATP field, but a lot, but but a lot more frequently, in my opinion, in short doses, on, on the on the women's side. You know, meaning that uh, there are some players who are still playing, but who've had injuries for a month or two, who've had to recover, or long term injuries, or who are simply missing this tournament because they're injured. For uh, they're, they're an injury that they've had before is coming back again. So it's going to be, a, you know, this U.S. Open is, uh, once again, you know, we'll have a lot of question marks. I feel that on the women's draw, we usually have question marks anyway. And I say that in a good sense, meaning that the field is, uh, the field is uh, wide, uh, wide open. There are a lot of quality players. You can't really pick two or three clear favorites on all, in almost every major so far. We've had a tough time picking you know, two or three clear favorites. And if we do, we end up being wrong most of the time. So um, I'm excited going into this, this U.S. Open. I just wish injuries didn't, uh, didn't play such a big role. Yeah, so uh, w- one follow-up question before we begin to, begin to look at some mat- matchups and some sections of the draw. The follow-up is, you know, two years ago at the U.S. Open when uh, Andrescu beat uh, Serena uh, in the final, that was a year in which the WTA Tour entered the U.S. Open with 12 different major semifinalists. Uh, not one player had made more than one major semifinal heading into New York. And Serena and also Alina Svitolina 
uh, whom she defeated in the semifinals that year. Um, they were the only two players. They were the two players who finally broke through and made a second major semifinal of the year. We have that same scenario this year. And actually, as a bonus, the four Olympic semifinalists were completely different from the 12 major semifinalists at the Australian Open, France, and Wimbledon. So 16, 16 unique major semifinalists. We go to New York with the field trying to see if, you know, there's going to be a repeat semifinalist at a signature tennis event this year. So, you know, are you inclined to think that there will be at least one or two uh, second time semifinalists, or are we going to go through 2021 with 20 unique semifinalists at the four majors and the Olympics? What's your sense of that? Uh, I'll take the former. I think there will be one or two semifinalists here that may have, that we may have seen before at the Olympics or in the three previous majors. But I do believe also that there will be a one or two new names again, a new semifinalist for the for the year 2021. And um, you know, because some of the players that were in form earlier in the year are no longer in form or are missing. And uh, there are some players who are coming on strong. So, uh, and that's the beauty of the of the WTA field. It's uh, there, there. There are a lot of uh, and there's there's a wide variety of uh, of game style, Matt. In other words, there are some players who are, um, you know, the baseliners. There are some all all court players. There are some players who like to attack, hit the ball flat, use slice, or use heavy topspin. Rely on footwork. Rely on power. You name it, you got it. So, um, yes, I do believe that there will be one or two new semifinalists in terms of 2021. All right, let's break down the draw. And the first place to start is that absolutely loaded section in the Naomi Osaka quarter, which is bottom half. Um, it's it's the really the third quarter of the four uh, on, on your draw sheet. If you have it, you know, from top to bottom, one down to uh, 128. Um, so you have a, a rematch of the 2017 U.S. Open final in the first round. Madison Keys against Sloane Stevens. The winner there could meet Coco Goff, and the winner there uh, could meet Naomi Osaka. And you also have Angelique Kerber uh, in the, in that section as well. So Kerber. Keys, Stevens, Goff, and Osaka in one section, an absolutely stacked portion uh, of the women's draw. So how would you break that down? What are you looking for in that section? Any particular matchup components and perhaps also a sense of which player really can use this U.S. Open as a catapult either for 2022 or just for her game in general at this point in her career. Yes. And once again, just to be sure, we're talking about the Angelique Kerber down to Naomi Osaka section, correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, Matt, I think uh, this is an excellent opportunity for Coco Goff to once again show that uh, she belongs in the, in in the top uh, tier of, uh, of, of, um, of the WTA ranks. And uh, it's an excellent draw for her to, to once again, you know, to move forward to the second week of a major, this time perhaps, you know, having, collecting a couple of wins over some veterans, some more seasoned uh, major, you know, players, in, players in, in majors. 
No, there's Angelique Kerber, if she can get over that. By the way, golf's first round against Magda Lynette is not an easy, easy match either. Uh, you know, Lynette is a hard hitter, and, uh, and on a given day, she could give Coco Golf trouble. I do, you know, if I, of course, I'm going to pick golf on that one. A, a step further, Madison Keys, Sloan Stevens, although it's, uh, it's a great headline because in terms of like a, a, a headline that sticks out to the eye, uh, you know, finalists from 2017 playing in the first round here. I do think that their first round matchup is this deserved in the sense that both, neither player has performed well. And uh, so it's, I'm not, it's not surprising considering their, their performance of late that these two players are no, not even seated and that they end up playing each other first round. But the, the play, you know, both of them could be dangerous, but I don't think they're at the, I just don't think they're at golf's level at this point. So I, I see golf's moving forward there and reaching to play uh, Angelique Kerber. And uh, that should be the first real test for golf. And if she wins and she has to play Naomi Osaka, who has won three rounds to get to the fourth round to play golf, meaning that Osaka has found her rhythm again, then that's a major test for golf. If that matchup happens, I'm going to take Osaka because, because to me, Osaka has to be beaten before I can pick against Osaka on hard courts, on hard courts in the majors. So, you know, if that match ha- matchup happens, I'm going to take Osaka, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to underscore once again the, uh, the opportunity that the Coco Golf has here to reach the quarterfinals taking out two previous uh, multiple slam uh, winners and reaching the quarterfinals that you're talking about a young uh, skyrocketing career and taking a major step, you know, a large step forward. This is the chance right here for Coco Golf, and she's in form. So uh, it's, it's not, uh, I'm not talking about a low probability chance here. This could happen. All right. Now, you know, we have some recent intel. We have some recent information that informs these potential matchups in this section. We had a Goff Kerber matchup at Wimbledon and we had a Goff Osaka matchup in Cincinnati. So very simply, very simply, Mark, what, if anything, do you draw from these matches? What should we be looking for if they meet at the open based on what we saw earlier this summer? Matt, I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna take too much from those matches. I think if they face each other here, it'll be a different situation. It's a different surface, also from Wimbledon, for example. But uh, I think Coco Golf in the United States, on at the U.S. Open hard courts, has even a better chance of performing well against Kerber or Osaka than she did anywhere else. Now, the, the, you know, the the, the 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 latter one was in Cincinnati. Yes, but this is a, you know, again, this is the U.S. Open. And of course, I'm looking at it. I'm not I'm not denying that if, um, you know, Coco Goff ends up facing Angelique Kerber on paper, Kerber will be the favorite. I'm not denying that. And same thing with Goff facing Osaka on paper. Osaka will be the favorite. I'm not denying that either. But I do see the potential for a, for a stunning run here by Goff. And if she does make it to the quarterfinals there, I'm looking at the other quarterfinalists that would come from the other side. She may face someone even less challenging than what she had faced until she, she reaches the quarterfinals. This is a really, really big opportunity for Coco Golf. All right. Let's, let's, let's uh, talk a little bit more about the players she might meet 
in, you know, in in this tournament. Uh, let's start with Angelique Kerber. You know, her revival this this summer. Um, you know, I think some people might say this was specific to grass. Um, but you know, she had a she had a relatively solid Cincinnati tournament, which created the idea that no, it's not just a grass specific revival for Kerber. That her game uh, is, is generally a, a awakening overall. Um, how, how do you see this tournament from Kerber's perspective? And, you know, do you think that, uh, you know, at, at her age, I believe she's 33, um, you know, do you think that that there is the capacity to sustain this? What 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 does Kerber need to do? Uh, not so much, not just at this tournament, but at this point in her career in terms of, you know, a, attaining a measure of longevity um, that, that that she so, so she doesn't fall into a rut, which has been a thing with her. You know, she'd have a great year. She'd have a bad year. She'd have a great year, bad year. The pandemic thing kind of interrupted things and and she was still in a lull early in 2021. But in the past few months, she's played great tennis. So what, what would be the key to Angie Kerber in terms of developing a greater measure of consistency as she also battles, you know, the aging process for a tennis player? I think Kerber is, is uh, Kerber writes on fitness, and if she's fit, if she's well prepared, and then she can go to distance. It doesn't matter really what her age is. In my opinion, she can do it. She can do it this tournament if she's fit. You know, so what we don't know what her day-to-day -day physical workouts go like. I mean, does she have an injury that she's nur she's nursing that we don't know? Who knows? But if she's if she doesn't have an injury and she's well prepared for the tournament, which I think she will be, then she's then she is. she has the capacity to go uh, to go all the way to to the title. I don't think she's uh, someone who's who goes into this tournament thinking I have no chance to win it, but I'd like to reach the second second week. I, I don't think she feels that way personally. I don't feel that way either. If she can catch if she can catch fire, she can go all the way. Uh, but, but, you know, she right. The, the problem I think I see with her here, Matt, and I, and I, by the way, I agree with the, with the idea that uh, she, this is not just a grass court thing. She is, she is in better form. She's in form. She's playing, playing well. It is a revival of her game overall. I feel this year, and I'm very happy to see it, but she's probably the best down the line counter puncher in the game. In other words, she can, you know, hit back that down the line on both sides, backhand and forehand unexpectedly she can even put side spin on it to where the ball goes outside the court down the line which is a, 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 an asset that she has that nobody else in the WTA has really on both sides I, I just think that it's a tough matchup for her to get over Coco Golf and Naomi Osaka in a row if if she has to if she's going to meet Coco Golf in the third round Golf will handle you know Angelique Kerber's best asset better than most other players she's fast She'll be able to run those down the line accelerations. And I think if you take that away from Kerber, she, then she's beatable. She's beatable in the sense that you can just grind her down. Uh, I think Goff can do that. And so can Osaka. In fact, Osaka can outplay her uh, from the baseline, you know, assuming that Osaka finds her top form either, which she hasn't found so far. You know, so, so, but she's very close to it, in my opinion. And if she wins three rounds here, and ends up pacing Gerber, who just came off beating golf. That'll be a spectacular match. But I will go with Osaka in that one if they face each other. But back to Gerber to answer your question. Yes, no, she's got she's got the potential to uh, to go all the way. I believe it. Um, 
Mer in terms of Osaka, you know, so much has been made of, you know, the off-court stuff, mental health, et cetera, et cetera. Talking strictly about her tennis, has that is there been something in her technique, something in her approach you notice tactically or in terms of form that she needs to specifically shore up for this tournament and specifically for the challenges that she might get from someone such as uh, Kerber or Goff? Uh, at the U.S. Open, Osaka's uh, backswing some is is a fairly you know I don't want to say a, a quick backswing, but she needs to be in position to be able to ride her her backswing on both backhand and forehand. You know, so it's a flowing backswing. It's she takes it back quickly and 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 accelerates the racket head fairly quickly. It's not one of these strokes where she takes the racket back way early and waits for the ball like some of the players do. So. In my opinion, her footwork needs to be in tip-top shape uh, to do well. So, you know, the uh, footwork has been my main um, concern for her. But I thought in her last match, in the last tournament, she moved fairly well. Not her best movement, but uh, fairly close. So I'm expecting, uh, you know, again, I'd like to see her first match against Buskova. And then maybe her second round match. And then I'll be able to say more. But uh but uh, I, I do feel that if she wins those first two rounds, by the time third round comes around, where she might face, face Putin Seva and Kanepi, Leila Fernandez, plus a qualifier, I think she will, be, she will have uh, found her rhythm again. And she will be a very difficult uh, opponent to beat. That's, you know, the, again, I'm picking, Matt, I'm picking Osaka uh, from that quarter. The, 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 she's my pick, but that, you know that uh, the, these are of course question marks that have to be answered. But uh, I don't see. I'm going to have to wait till somebody beats Osaka on major hard course to say to pick against her once again. I think you've kind of tipped your your big picture uh, prediction for the tournament, but that's okay uh, because you know that that is a definitely a question a lot of our listeners at Tennis with an Accent were interested in about Naomi Osaka. So let's say Osaka does get through that, uh, that section. Um, who do you think would be the toughest opponent for her in a possible quarterfinal? You have Svitolina, Rabakina, and Halep all in that other section of her quarter. Um, is there a matchup that you think would be particularly tough from that selection? Is there a matchup you are particularly looking forward to in that section? Go, go, you can take this wherever you want to maybe one of the five qualifiers <laughs> because you know matt there are a lot of good players in the qualifiers who are coming into the main draw and that section has five of them coming in and uh you know i it, it's hard to name names now because it's the, the 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 competition is still going on but uh some of these qualifiers are very good players and they're dangerous coming in so so i, I i'm not saying that a qualifier will reach a quarterfinal although it's not it's it has happened before many times but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to keep an eye on who the five qualifiers are in this section here, because this is a section that, to me, has three or four good names, but it's not necessarily loaded. Three or four good names in, in, for hardcore, for U.S. Open, that is. Uh, Simona Halep, as we know, is not in, um, again, the, you know, it's hard to say anything about Halep because you want to trust her. She's a consistent top performer for so long, but she's coming in. Uh, very unprepared, in my opinion, you know, the lack in, the lack in competition, and she has to face Camilla Giorgi, who just had a fabulous tournament. 
Now that doesn't mean Georgia is going to win, but if Georgia is the kind of player who, if she catches fire, would be a tough quarterfinal match for, for, for any player, let alone Osaka. But can she, you know, can she perform one, two, three, four great matches and then perform again against Osaka in the quarterfinals enough to beat and reach the semifinals? I'm not going to count on that. So here I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and play it safe and I'm going to pick, and, and this is going to be ironic when I say I'm playing it safe, and I'm, but I'm going to pick Elena Svitolina to reach the quarterfinals. Uh, this is, by the way, reaching the quarterfinals for Svitolina has not been a problem. Her problem has been going further. Um, so um, I'm, I'm going to go with her. You know, there's Reba Kina. Uh, there, there are some good players. There's uh, uh, Vondrosova here. But uh, I'm st- and there's, there's Kasatkino, of course, who's also a heck of a player. But uh, from that section, I'm going to go with Svitolina and play it safe. All right, let's go to the bottom quarter because we're st- we're staying in the bottom half of the draw. We'll get to the top half of the draw in due course. But uh, the other uh, quarter in the bottom half, you have Sabalenka as the, the highest seed there, uh, as the number two seed at the very bottom of the bracket. You also have uh, in her in her section, you have Mertens, Jabur, and Danielle Collins. So a lot, a lot of informed players there, particularly Jabur. Um, and then in the other section in that bottom quarter, you have uh, the French Open champion, Barbora Krachikova, uh, also uh, a struggling uh, Victoria Azarenka, and the always dangerous but hasn't really been able to catch fire this year, Garbina Muguruza. So uh, pick from the players there and, you know, stories that you have your eye on, players that you think might be ready to get on a roll and perhaps challenge um, Sabalenka in, in that bottom quarter. Okay, so uh, there are some uh, interesting names here and, and quite frankly, interesting uh, uh, matchups. And uh, I, I, you know, I've been, I've been big behind Muguruza for mo- for most of the year, but I don't think I'm going with her this time. Her, she's her, her decline in form, so to speak, has been uh, going on a, li- a bit too long, and uh, so I'm not sure that she can, uh, she can come back to the form that she had in the first three months of the year. Uh, therefore, I'm not sure if you know if she's going to be able to get through. Well, she's playing Donna Vekic first round, which is which is never an easy first round. But then she has to get through Azarenka. And uh, I know she's had her struggles. Azarenka has had her struggles. But I think at this point, if they have to play each other in the third round, I'm going to go with Vika there. But uh, there's there's Barbara, Barbara Krejcikova, who's backed up her uh, her major title with a lot of good results after that. So I'm finding it a little bit hard to pick against her also. So, so I'm looking forward to Krejcikova, Azarenka, um, fourth round in that side. And then at the bottom, I, to me, the bottom part was not a, it was an easy pick for me, Matt. I put Sabalenka all the way to the fourth round. Uh, I, I don't think there's anybody that can stop her there. I think the, the only player that can possibly give Arina Sabalenka any trouble until fourth round is Sabalenka herself. If she shoots herself in the foot with all of a sudden an hour of hitting where she produces 20 on four stairs, then she'll lose. But there's nobody on that side, including Jabur, in my opinion, that can stop Sabalenka if she's playing. I'm not even going to say she's playing her best, but if she's playing solid tennis. So I'm, 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 you know, I'm putting her on the fourth round, playing the winner of Barbara Krejcikova. 
I'm sorry, in the quarterfinals, playing the winner of Barbara Krejcikova and uh, Vika, Vika Zarenka. How much should we read into uh, what um, both Krejcikova and also Sabalenka have done since their breakthroughs? I mean, Krejcikova obviously broke through at a higher level winning a major, but Sabalenka making a major semifinal for the first time, you know, playing a tough third set against Klitschkova at Wimbledon. I mean, so I mean, they both made breakthroughs. Obviously, Krejcikova's was bigger. H how much do you think that's going to affect how they're going to play in New York? How much do you think that's going to change, uh, you know, how, how they go about their business? And, you know, this is a larger theme we're seeing in tennis, and it kind of also deals with the men. Like, you know, Tsitsipas made a first major final. How does he handle the changed reality of that? He's actually struggled with that in the first few months after it. And we're seeing other players get to higher uh, points of achievement. Matteo Berrettini making a Wimbledon final. You know, how does he handle that new reality? So maybe speak to when we talk about Kachikova and also Savalenka in this bottom quarter, we're also talking about a larger question of, you know, when players taste a higher level of success, I think the casual fan, Mert, uh, is inclined to think, oh, well, now the floodgates are just going to go, are going to open and it's going to be riches and prosperity. But we see, especially in the example of Sitsipas in particular, Mert, that no, it's not this straight linear progression up the ladder. Once you taste a, a higher level of success, that actually makes you a target and you have to learn how to replicate successes uh, after you attain them. So how, how would this apply to uh, Krachikova and Sabalenka uh, in this quarter, especially right. if they meet in the quarterfinals? Yes, I think the examples you gave, um, Matt, especially um, the Tsitsipas example, and we can give Shriontek on the women's side too. Yes. You know, the talk about becoming a star and becoming a target. Uh, apply to Sabalenka, but I'm not sure that they apply to Krachikova. Krachikova is not a newcomer on the big scene. She's a seasoned player who's tasted second weeks of majors and even lifting the trophies of majors. Yes, in doubles, I understand, but she's been, she's been in the big stage before, uh, just not in singles. So I don't think she's going to be feeling strange to the idea of being in the second week of a major, which, by the way, I think helped her big time on her run to the title uh, at Roland Garros. So I think these two are different cases. I don't see Krejcikova from suffering from that. I think she's good. I think she can go out and perform. I don't believe she will, uh, but, but she will find herself in new grounds or, or she has, she feels like she has to back up much. Uh, she's a seasoned player who's, who's been on high stage, who's been on in high stakes situations, doubles. Yes, it was in doubles, but in my opinion, it doesn't matter that much in the sense that, it makes a big difference for her versus someone like Sabalenka, whose uh, who's, who's success or reaching the late stages of a big time tournament, of a spotlight tournament depends on her singles performance. So for Sabalenka, it's new grounds. I'm not sure it is for Krejcikova, but I do believe that the, the, you know, her, Sabalenka's run at Wimbledon will do wonders for her. Sabalenka is not, a, is not uh, someone who is afraid of an opponent. She'll go out and play anybody. Yes, she does get, you know, she's a tense player on the court. 
So when stakes are high, yeah, that may play a role, but not more than most other youngsters. And uh, since her since her biggest weapon is to, you know, is to knock the ball hard and overpower her opponent, and uh, she's 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 physically very tough. She's got a good serve, great forehand. She'll have trouble against a certain type of player who who feeds her a lot of low balls. But I don't think she will have trouble with any other type of player. And I see her going to the fourth round. I'm looking at those players in her section. I just don't see anybody giving her trouble. But the, those two, those two cases are, you know, just a little bit different in, in, different in the sense that I just tried to explain. If if Krejcikova has to play Sabalenka, let me put it to you this way, very shortly, in a, in a short form. If Krejcikova has to play Sabalenka in the quarterfinals, I'm going to pick Krejcikova over Sabalenka. But if Sabalenka ends up playing, you know, someone else in the quarterfinals, a less uh, seasoned player, I'll pick Sabalenka to go to the semis. All right, let's go to the uh, top half of the draw and uh, let's go to that second quarter. Um, the second quarter, you have uh, Karolina Pliskova, uh, Paula Badosa, Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova, and then uh, it, it, that's it. That's one section. And then another section, you have Maria Sakari, uh, Yelena Ostapenko, and Bianca Andrescu. So lots of very intriguing uh, stories players entering this tournament from very different vantage points. And, and, and as you said, very eloquently, you know, players not just being injured, but, you know, just being in and out of form in and out of rhythm, you know, they've had their years interrupted, you know, not so much a six or seven month interruption, which we're seeing with Federer and Nadal on the men's side, but just even like a being away for a month or two, you know, right before a major tournament, that is still significant in terms of uh, limiting how much practice, how much preparation, how much rhythm one can bring to a major tournament. All of that matters. So, you know, from the clutter of these different situations, I'm especially thinking of Pavs, you know, who, you know, he, she was injured really in late in the Roland Garros final against Krachikova. Uh, she has struggled to a degree physically, uh, since then. And of course, Bianca Andrescu just hasn't been able to get off the ground consistently uh, stymied by various health concerns uh, of different kinds. So, so from these different situations in this second quarter of the draw, what, what, what do you see happening and what are you most interested in uh, from this Pliskova Andrescu uh, quarter? Okay, so, you know, Andrescu is here, uh, uh, Bianca Andrescu is here because um, her 2019 points are still in effect. Uh, that's why she's seated so high at number six. But uh, at this point, she, 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 I don't see, you know, it, it would be hard to see her living up to her seated uh, position in this tournament. In fact, I'm going to pick an upset here. Um, I'm, I'm, I think Golovic has a good chance of beating Andrescu first round. And this is coming from a big Andrescu fan. You know, I've even mentioned her as my dream uh, four players who, 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 who I would like to see dominate women's tennis for the next four or five players, you know, along with Ash Barty, Osaka, and uh, Shiontek. I've said this before, even on tennis with an accent. Uh, but, uh, but in this particular case here, uh, I don't see Andrescu going far. Uh, I possibly see Victoria Golovic not only upsetting Andrescu here, but going further 
you know, gone further from section, from that section all the way to the fourth round. Golubic is in form. Uh, she's had a very good year. She's very mature player, has, has, has many, plenty of weapons. So, yes, okay, you know, if, if Andrescu all of a sudden, uh, you know, shows up her best game, which is a possibility, then uh, under normal circumstances, I pick Andrescu over Golubic. But in this case, I'm going to go with, the, with an upset here in the first round. And then after that, you know, depending on, you know, what, what version of Ostapenko shows up, Ostapenko could go to the fourth round. But I'm going to stick with my upset pick here and take Golubic. And then on right above them, there's Sakari and um, Sakari and Kvitova. I'm a big fan of Kvitova. I think she can beat any player in the WTA on a given day if she's at the top of her form. But she's, you know, here we go again. It's a player who gets injured here and there, uh, who's underperformed at at some majors lately, and uh, and she's, you know, she's in and out of injury. Same thing with, uh, you know, the players you just mentioned uh, and even Badosa, who's in form this year and Pavlichenkova are not, I'm not sure if they're 100% healthy going, in, uh, going into the tournament. And then you have a couple of qualifier spots here. Then you got Plisko, Pliskova, who's a very likely p- pick to go to the uh, semis from here. If you, you know, if you, if you pick Pliskova, I can't really argue against that. But I'm going to also, uh, but I'm going to go with another possible upset unseated uh, player here in the section. I like Amanda Anisimova. Uh, you know, she said that she said a, a, tra- a tragedy struck last year with her, and uh, and then she recovered from that mentally, and uh, she uh, she moved forward. And I feel like she's finding her form. I saw her her um, uh, three of her last five matches. I feel like she's finding her for form. She's playing Zarina Diaz first round, who I think she can go get past. And then she has to play Pliskova. It would be a big upset, but but it is a possible upset. And that section of the draw can open up for, for the winner of Pliskova and Anisimova. Uh, I'm not sure if Badosa or Pavlichenkova can, uh, can really... Um, keep up with well i don't know you know badosa is a heck of a player but but again it's just hard to pick these players matt because they're in and out of injury you know they retired from matches lately so you don't know what their status is coming into coming into the u.s open all right we need to devote at least one a few minutes to karolina pliskova because you and i both mert i mean i was convinced early in 2021 that karolina pliskova was a spent force, you know, that she ran her race, didn't seem to have much of anything in the tank, didn't seem to have an extra measure of competitive grit to offer. Like it just, it seemed as though the pilot light was out. And I know that you weren't, you know, uh, particularly high on her chances of, of winning a major title. And, you know, she didn't win it, but she came really, really close at Wimbledon. So you and I are both surprised to varying degrees by the resurrection of Karolina Pliskova, what what do you what do you to what do you assign uh, this revival in her game? I think Pliskova is moving very well. You know, for for someone who's because this that's not one of her forte. She moves well side to side. She has long reach with her legs, and uh, but she's not necessarily great in place, and she's not necessarily. Um, quick with her first step. In other words, balls that are coming into her body or balls that are, you know, that are short, low, where she has to take quick steps forward. 
And that that hurt her a little bit, for example, against Ash Barty in the finals of Wimbledon. But your point is well taken, Matt. I, you know, I, I was in the same boat as you. In fact, I, I, I remember very well saying that I felt like she had a window of opportunity where she could have won a slam that passed her by because now we have a large number of contenders in the last couple of years. Uh, and, and I just, you know, I, I said that I don't think she has she has the game to win a major, but she came really close. So yes, I can still claim, well, she hasn't won a major, like I said, but that would be uh, 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 dishonest on my part to not include the nuance that she came really, really close at Wimbledon. So yes, and once again here, she has, you know, she drew, she has a fairly good draw, in my opinion. You know, she if she if she can perform at her top level, she can go to the semifinals here. It's not that difficult, really. You know, I, I had to go, for example, I just picked my two unseeded picks. Both of them come from this like, this quarter of the draw. You know, my two unseeded picks, you know, in terms of dark horse to go far in the tournament. And Pliskova is in this section, meaning that she's the clear favorite to me if all goes according to plan. So, yes, she has a chance to go, get to the semifinals here. And, uh, you know, a golden opportunity for her to put together two more matches in the last weekend of the of the tournament and perhaps lift the trophy that she so badly wants. All right. Winding down, uh, we're, we're now dealing with the top quarter, the final quarter uh, in our U.S. Open women's preview with uh, Mert Ertunga. And uh, Mert, uh, Iga Sviantek, to me, she's the most fascinating player at this U.S. Women's Open. And, and, and I'll explain why. Uh, you know, I've seen on Twitter some people say, some people who really are high on her, you know, and think that she's the next superstar in the making, which is very possible. I'm not criticizing the people who who think that she has, you know, super duper star potential, you know, talking about like 10, 12 major titles, double digit majors. I'm not criticizing that line of thought at all. But many of the people who think that she is a superstar in the making and she has that kind of material, that kind of potential, they've been saying, well, gosh, she's getting these absolutely ridiculous draws, you know, so tough. You know, she keeps running into an informed Jabur, you know, in the early rounds. And it's just such bad luck. And my thought process is, Mert, well, if you are a superstar material, you have to win some of these matches against these informed players. You have to find a way past Ons Jabur, even if Jabur is in form, which of course she has been, and credit to her for the great season that she's had. But like if, if you're going to be talked up as the next big thing in tennis or any sport, you do have to find your way to solve these tough problems. So kind of what you know, is this a sense of is Sviantek being oversold? Like, is the hype train kind of gone all out of proportion here? Um, or, you know, is it legitimate to still have superstar expectations for her, but just to kind of say, well, but, you know, it's still going to be a long progression, even for someone with such talent. Like, what is this? An, she's an enigmatic figure. And what do you think that uh, we should be reasonably expecting her, not just at this U.S. Open, but at this still tender point in her evolving and still very young career. No, I, I, I have high expectations from Shiontek myself, a uh, big, big Shiontek fan here. And, uh, and I do believe that she has the potential to, re- to win a second, third major or reach top three in the WTA or at one point even reach top one. 
in other words, be the top player in the WTA. And um, for example, I had high expectations at Wimbledon from her. But look, you know, she's she lost to Ons Jabeur, which in my opinion is not something to be ashamed about. Jabeur is a very tough player, very unorthodox player in the in in the sense that not many play people play like her. So when you face a player like that, you you have to kind of adjust your plan A. And maybe Shriomtek is in the process of learning that she has to she has to adjust her plan A to beat some players because when she won her major. Uh, the French Open that year, she didn't have to adjust her plan A. She beat everyone with her with the one plan that she has. So perhaps she has to, you know, add a, a certain facets to her game to create more opportunities, but she has them. Shionte can hit a lot of shots. She already has them. She just has to learn how to, you know, put them together more consistently. She's she's a high high IQ player, so I have no doubt that she'll she'll be able to figure that out. And uh, I think I understand, you know, the expectations from her. But I also, I, I also do push back against that uh, the idea that I mean, I agree with you that uh, you know she has to be, she has to overcome these challenges. You you know, you cannot always say unlucky or game style, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But now, does that mean she has underperformed? Maybe. But is what she's going through unusual? Certainly not. So I, I don't I, I, I look at what Shriantek has done over the last uh, 12 months or even over, you know, her her um, major victory. I don't see anything unusual in comparison to other youngsters who reach uh, 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 the, the high level or the top who so-called, you know, reach the top of the of the stairs for one tournament. And then, you know, not necessarily repeat that same performance for, for a while before they do it again. So I, I, if, if the comparison that people are trying to make is like what she's going through is what Ostapenko had gone through after French Open, I don't think Shriontek is there. I don't think those two are comparable, those two situations. I think Shriontek will find a way to, to win another major or, or go further. In fact, I'm going to expect here her to play to go all the way to the fourth round and play Belinda Bencic. I think that that's going to be a heck of a match. And it, to me, that's a 50-50 matchup. Belinda Bencic is in form. She won the Olympics and she has reached the semifinals at the US Open before. So this is not new grounds. That's actually the fourth round match that I'm looking forward to the most if they both get there. I understand that there's Jill Teichman, dangerous player there. I understand that there's Jessica Pegula, Who's, who's also a good player, but uh, Bencic has Bencic defeated Pegula at the Olympics. Um, I, I'm just looking forward to that Bencic-Shiontek matchup in the fourth round, if it happens, and then the winner of that matchup going on to play Ashley Barty. Now, you know, we can speculate all we want about Ash Barty's mental state. You know, she's been living on the road uh, since February and, you know, has put together this absolutely phenomenal year. We can speculate all we want about, you know, oh, is she going to, you know, lose focus after all the, 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 the high climbing and all the heavy lifting that she's done? You know, the, the, the prospect of finally going home to Australia. I mean, that's an obvious natural point of I don't, I don't think distraction is really the right word. It's more of like temptation, like it just it will sound so good for her to, you know, to complete this journey get back home, relax, kick up her feet, look at that nice, shiny Venus rose water dish that she won at Wimbledon, 
and be satisfied. You know, I mean, and, and I mean, she's she's obviously a consummate professional, but she's also a human being and she's put in so much work. She's achieved so much. And, you know, will she have the hunger when she gets pushed to problem solve her way through seven matches the way she did at Wimbledon? Um, you know, I mean, we it, it's obviously a point of speculation and we can't really know. But I think a lot of people in Tennis Mert, you know, are, are wrestling with this specific question with Ash Barty at the U.S. Open. Just what's your sense of, of what you expect to see from her in New York? Yeah, I mean, we're going to find out very quickly how, how hungry she is or how she's going to handle being pushed because she might end up playing in the second round Claire Towson, who's, who's, who's a very, very good player, undersold in the media or under, you know, underappreciated by the tennis world. Uh, this is a player who's this is a youngster who's a phenomenal striker, ball striker. And when I say a ball striker, I'm not saying that that's all she can do. She can also hit angles. She can hit drop shots. But and, uh, to add to her power, that's, that's part of her plan A. And she's taken the tough road. You know, she's, she hasn't received any wild cards or, or she hasn't gotten any favors from any tournaments. She's had to qualify through the ITF ranks. She, she, she did it step by step. And she recently won her the WTA tournament. And uh, she's coming in. This is probably a, the, a player that's coming into the U.S. Open more informed, uh, Matt, than anyone else. And I know this sounds weird. But, uh, you know, in my opinion, that's the case. And, uh, you know, she won the Chicago Challenger just recently, you know, beating Raducanu in the finals. And, uh, and I just think that, uh, you know, we got a player here who can, who can all of a sudden make a name for herself. And I guarantee you that Towson is craving to get a huge win on big stage so that she can, you know, so that everybody notices her in, in the sense that everybody outside of tennis nerds notice her okay i'm talking about the casual tennis fan and everyone else and this would be a big opportunity so i you know barty in my opinion ash barty is going to have a tough uh, matchup in the second round if those two play each other but going back to your original question yes barty can absolutely move on and win win uh, another another major here in fact i would pick her the favorite to win this tournament and because i'm also looking at her section well there's carolina muhova and if you remember, Muhova beat her at the, at the Australian Open this year in a very strange match where, uh, you know, she had to, she left the court, she came back and, and then Barty all of a sudden, you know, was leading a set and Muhova left the court and came back and Barty all of a sudden got lost and Muhova ended up beating her in three sets. But um, Muhova is also in an, has, has been in and out of injury for months now. So I can't really say that she's going to put forth her best tennis because Muhova, you know, health, a healthy Muhova is dangerous for anyone, you know, including Barty. But uh, so taking Muhova out of the equation in terms of dangerous opponents, I see Barty here going, uh, going all the way to the quarterfinals without missing a beat. And once she gets to the quarterfinals, we're looking at, you know, the section we were just discussing, Bencic and uh, Shriontek. You know, that's, that's, that's going to be a tough matchup, but I'm going to continue to pick Barty here all the way to the finals on this top half of the draw. I'm really going out on a limp here, aren't I? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, I mean, a Barty-Osaka final, which I presume you are predicting, I mean, yes. that would be an absolute blockbuster event because you have 
world number one, reigning Wimbledon champion, a champion of both Roland Garros and Wimbledon against the best hardcore player in the world. So um, I, I, I'm assuming that you have Osaka over Barty. I do, actually, yes. <laughs> well, you know, the, the USTA and ESPN and all worldwide uh, television rights holders at the U.S. Open would be extremely happy uh, if that was the outcome. So, Mert, <laughs> thank you very much. I'm going to hand it over to Saqib Ali for our U.S. Open men's preview. I just want to say before we close out our show that, you know, if you want to support our work at Accent Tennis, uh, you like what we do, um, you know, we have our uh, Accent underscore Tennis Twitter handle. We have a donation page at Kofi button. Uh, if you just want to throw in some tip jar money, whatever you can reasonably afford, we want it to be reasonable and affordable for you. But if you, you like our work, you want to support us, that's what you can do. Visit our uh, Twitter page, accent underscore tennis, donate to us at Kofi button. Uh, Mert, enjoy your men's preview with Sakib. Thanks so much for joining me for this U.S. Open women's preview at Tennis with an Accent. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Matt. <clears throat> the relay continues. I replace you. This is like, in, you know, I'm coming off the bench. I mean, never easy replacing Matt Semmel. <laughs> uh, and Mert, I mean, what, what do I say? I mean, my lucky day, Paul Anacon, Darren Cahill, now Mert Artunga. I mean, this yeah, is... <laughs> okay. All right. Let's not, let's not dramatize here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the last we spoke was in April. So welcome, welcome back on the show. Uh, I know you've been doing some great work where it really matters. And we probably will do a podcast when uh, time allows for it. But thank you. Thank you. Thank for, you for making time for us and uh, you are in federal country. Uh, we yes. on the beans, but- uh, Yes, in Geneva. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so again, you know, like we, we talked, this is gonna be a little non-traditional preview. We won't go section by section. So I have a loose agenda and I'll share with you and then you can let me know uh, if that suits. So we definitely talk about Djokovic. Every time the man steps on court, he's creating new history. And this is like, you know, uh, this is what, what we all were talking about. And now, you know, he's gonna be here trying to wing uh, four in one season. He's done four in a stretch before. And then we'll talk about his biggest challengers. That list is usually few names here and there, but but with no Nadal, no team, this list may have a couple of new new names per your perspective. Then we look at maybe a section of your choice where the draw really is intriguing. And then we can talk about, you know, like few guys like, like Songa. Could it be his last open? Uh, and then uh, we can talk about, you know, rise of Korda. Is he legit? I know you and I have talked about it on WhatsApp and DM messages, but this is the audience where I think your word goes a long distance. And there's a, I see it, there's a big divide on Korda. So we can talk about him. Uh, we can talk about any player of your preference. We can talk about Kyrgios, Batista Agut, Andy Murray. And then we'll talk about if time, you know, if we have time, you know, uh, go back to 90s and do like a five-minute throwback, the best U.S. Open you remember, because that's where I can at least keep, you know, equal footing with you. Uh, the, rest <laughs> <Okay>. is, <laughs> the rest is your show. So <laughs> let, let's uh, let's talk about Novak. I mean, uh, you know, first man since labor, you know, what he's going to be trying to do here uh, when four in a row and, you know, you've corrected many people. That's when it's called a Grand Slam when you win that's correct. That's the Grand Slam. Yeah, that's when right. You win Wimbledon or U.S. Open independently, it's the Slam or Majors. Yes. So that's like you know, tennis one hundred and one. You can you can call the Slam, Saki, but I'm going to call it a Major. <laughs> okay, right. but no, I understand. No, no. The, yeah. the the key here is the term Grand Slam. You yeah. know, when when you win a Major, you when you win Wimbledon, for example, that's not winning a Grand Slam. 
you know, Grand, Grand Slam is for winning all four majors in the same year. It's a common mistake. But unfortunately, what we're doing here is we're not creating a new term. We're taking a term that means something else and using yeah. it in the wrong way. That's why I'm kind of, uh, you know, it's my pet peeve. No, no, that's good. I, I'm also okay with proper things, you know, what it's supposed to be. You know, I'm a little old school and now in my mid-40s, <laughs> I value these things a little more. Yeah. Um, so let's let's focus on Novak, right? Uh, we talked about the Australian Open review, like how he, you know, played that, you know, unbelievable level of tennis against Medvedev. Uh, Mid-tournament, you know, he had, you know, injury concerns when he, it looked like he may even not play the next match, like the Taylor Fritz match, the Roundage match, right? Then again, Zverev, he played in pain. You know, again, at 20 slams, I don't want to like, you know, try to put a rap quickly, but he's been through almost any adversity on the court. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he has made it a habit of coming through and that's what his toughness and that's what the legend is. But uh, do you think at this stage of his career, he made a conscious choice going to Japan because clearly meant a lot to him to, you know, win the gold in Tokyo. Uh, if, if he's physically healthy, you think, you know, this uh, three week gap by skipping Cincinnati and Canada, I think it's a good move. You think he can, you know, uh, come at the U.S. Open and just uh, resume business as usual? Uh, or this kind of a gap of n- not playing tennis for three weeks at this stage, could it be a challenge? Um, I think if for him, uh, he can resume his top-level tennis. Uh, I guess the question is, has he, has he recovered enough? You know, because he, he did something that he's never done before, you know, in, in the summer where... He plays Wimbledon. He goes to the other side of the world to play uh, to play the Olympics, and then he comes back to the other side of the world to play another major. Luckily, there's enough time between these tournaments. In other words, you know, he's had here two weeks off. I'm not surprised at all that he passed, uh, you know, the, these last two term, these last two ATP 1000s. Um, I don't know if um, we'll have to see the first couple of matches to see how much of in form he is. But the bottom line is he's so far ahead of, of everyone else in the field, especially, you know, if you go, if you get past two or three other names that I'm sure we'll talk about later, he's so far ahead of everybody else on the field that he doesn't have to put out his best to reach uh, the quarterfinals or the semifinals. You know, a, a 70%, 75% version of Djokovic will probably be enough to reach the quarterfinals or in the, even the semis here. Um, you know, I, I guess it's after that that he'll have, to, he'll have to pull up his level to 90% or 100% version of Novak uh, to, to, make, to, you know, to win the tournament and accomplish the Grand Slam. But, um, and and I, I think I'm looking at his draw and I think that I find that very durable. I don't see anyone early who can you know catch him off guard before he finds his top form to give him trouble to to possibly take him to a to a fourth or a fifth set and and miraculously pull a stunning upset I don't, I don't see anyone like that on on his little section of the draw so yes I'm putting him all the way to the semis without a second thought you know uh, in in, uh, in on my bracket at least and he's obviously a, a huge candidate to win the Grand Slam at the end of the year and uh, accomplish something that only one other player has accomplished before in the open air. Yeah, I think you said something, uh, you know, that has been resonating all over. I think the tennis discourse that 75 or 80% of Djokovic is good enough to get it done against majority of the players. And then, you know, like in, in fan discussions or even fair, fair amount of analysis, 
uh, Djokovic speak or Federer speak or Sampras speak. You know, we all throw this around. But I think in a sportsman's career, when these careers are these long and these productive, I mean, I've even followed cricket pretty closely. You know, like there are legends of the game who've played like, you know, close to two decades. You know, like physical peak and mental peak, I mean, sometimes coincides. And when players get into, you know, close to the sunset or the twilight, right, they rely on different things. And I want to just showcase, because I didn't get a chance to speak to you during Wimbledon. We had a good detailed uh, Twitter space with Andrew, myself and Matt. And even against Shapovalov and Berrettini, I don't know how much of those matches you saw. You know, it was never in doubt that Djokovic is going to lose the match. Yeah, he was in Shapovalov match. He had a lot of tough situations scoreboard-wise. And sometimes, oh, yeah, you know, he wasn't tested. But I think to give full credit when sometimes it doesn't meet the naked eyes, there were a lot of 15, 30 points in the Berrettini match. When, and you know, like, we all become accustomed to see Djokovic come through there. So how much of a mental toll do you think that takes? Because, oh, Djokovic is supposed to beat Berrettini. It was not like, say, it wasn't Federer, it wasn't Nadal, it wasn't Zverev a team. You know, Berrettini doesn't have a backhand, but still, you know, he has to win that match. And Berrettini was hitting bombs and hitting huge forehands. We all knew he's not going to win the match, but still he was asking those questions at 1530, a couple of 1540s. So how, how much, you know, I know Djokovic has done everything in tennis, but my, what I'm trying to ask is the mental toll of that match. And, you know, in this late in his career, he's also not a young guy, you know. So just walk us through, like, you know, w- what gets overlooked when we, when we decipher a performance like that? Sakil, I think what you're saying uh, is valid. If um, if someone, if a player is bound to perhaps get bogged down over time and wear out mentally over time from that type of pressure, where you know he is the main target that everybody's shooting for to beat, and uh, and he has to struggle through four setters, five setters, tough matches where he he's on the brink of defeat, but he comes back and wins the match that may play a, a, a role or that, that may take a toll over a player over the year. And by the time you reach the U.S. Open, you feel the weight of that and maybe you're trying to make another run and this time you, um, this time you get tackled. I don't think Djokovic has had to face that. You know, the, one, the, the only match where I think he's had to really pull himself together was after the second set against Tsitsipas at the, at, in the finals of Roland Garros. You know, I, I, you know when, he, when, when he went down two sets earlier in that tournament, I don't, think he, he, I don't think he doubted for one second that he was going to come back and win in three sets. And then when he, but when he went down against Tsitsipas in the finals, you know, after the second set, I think he did, you know, have doubts and he did have to gather himself up and, and you know, pull himself back up, get mentally tough and, uh, and bring it back to now, so to speak, stay in the now and, uh, and go ahead and win that match. I think that's the only match where he felt like he was, he really needed to pull himself together and focus being to hundred percent. I don't think he's had to make that effort in any other match this year in the, in the majors. I think he knew pretty much every match that he was going into, he was going to win. Most of them he won easily. And I don't believe that he's had the type of runs in the three previous majors that take a toll on your on you mentally enough to wear you down in the fourth major, and I mean we can go year by year to to people who've who've had success before, but usually you know you you have to be pushed a lot harder by the rest of the field to to go into the U.S. Open doubting yourself. Djokovic has not been pushed hard by the rest of the field. In fact, he's toying with the rest of the field, in my opinion. 
No, no, I agree he's, with he's, you. You know, he's he's beating everyone quickly. I mean, you know, to, to be able to put this into concrete terms, we would have to look down the draw and say, okay, you know, uh, worn out Djokovic, who could he possibly, X, Y, Z player could possibly take out a worn out Djokovic. Okay, let's put that sentence into practice. I'm looking at the, I'm looking at his half, or the, at least his quarter of the draw. I don't see anybody that fits that phrase. I, ca I can't replace X, Y, Z with a name from there. I think he's going to get to the semifinals, in my opinion, yep. without losing a set. Sure. So that, you know, that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of uh, um, thing that I'm trying to underline. I, I, I don't, you know, I think he's, in a, he's at a level above of what you described. Is Hubert Hurkacz a good player who can give him trouble? Maybe for a set, but not for five, but not over five sets. Uh, you know, so if Djokovic comes in physically ready to go seven matches, I don't think he's going to have trouble to get to the semis at least. Yeah, no, I'm totally in agreement with that. And I think uh, uh, maybe I didn't position my question right. When I was making an observation about Wimbledon was just for the record. Right. I think, you know, like every time Djokovic is going to court, like he has a date with history, right? He's going to win Wimbledon. He gets to 20. He's going to win US Open. He'll join, you know, Lever and Graf and Budge, right? So what I meant was even against Shapovalov and... Uh, Berrettini, there was very little doubt that, you know, yes. Djokovic can lose. I was just giving an accolade to Djokovic because, you know, Djokovic's biggest opponent right now is history and Djokovic. Sure. You know, of course, when he played Nadal, his biggest opponent was Nadal because that they're like equals, you know, right. in terms of in terms of what they've achieved. So I was just like trying to say sometimes we say, okay, that was a one-sided match. But I think Djokovic is also putting a lot of pressure on himself to, you know, do these things. And it, it takes his toll. And, you know, he's passing that with flying color. That's what I meant. No, and, no, uh, I understand. I was talking about I totally understand. I wasn't uh, by any means questioning your question. You, you, you are correct. And, and in a way, I think you would agree with this too. In a way, the fact that he, him putting pressure on himself to surpass that expectation is a motivation for Djokovic in and out of itself. It fits his on-court personality. You know, he's, he, he, he embraces uh, those types of challenges. And, uh, you know, it also helps that, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, players like Deminor uh, or Berrettini uh, on his side, you know, they, they're they either not in form or played very little after Wimbledon. You know, Berrettini, for example, played very little since Wimbledon. So, you know, it's it's just, a, I, I just don't see anybody challenging him at all on, on that quarter of the draw. No, I, I agree. And we touched upon a little bit about Berrettini and Hurkacz. So just a little... Give the listeners your thoughts on, you know, what the grass court season was and who's a better hardcore player. For me, it's Hurkacz. But, uh, you know, you're the coach. You know the X's and O's of the, you know, strokes and, you know, how they move. Is backhand a liability? There's a lot of talk about Berrettini's backhand being compared to Roddick or Raonic, that, you know, it's kind of stiff. There's less lower back movement. But again, you know, these are like stolen words from Twitter. I can impress a certain audience with this, but, you know, I'm going to hide behind the facts that you know more. So break down <laughs> Berrettini and Hurkacz, who's a better hardcourt player. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm completely in agreement with you. I, if I had to pick between those two today, especially since Berrettini's, I'm not sure about Berrettini's physical uh, prowess at this point because he's played very little since Wimbledon. I'm picking Hurkacz here to, to get to the quarterfinals, to, to, to play against Djokovic. In fact, Sonego may be a, may be a tougher challenge for Hurkacz than anyone else in his section. 
So um, yeah, no, I'm 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 with you. Not much to say there. I'm uh, I'll in fact in my bracket I wrote Djokovic versus Hurkac in the quarterfinals. So yeah, that's where I am. Okay, yeah, I'm coming back slowly to tennis. I, I haven't really watched much. I watched Toronto, and then I didn't watch a lot of Cincinnati. So again, it's Djokovic versus the field. He's the overwhelming favorite. We've already addressed that. Who is the biggest challenger? Or who's that small set of players? Uh, I know who it is, but I want to hear it from you. How do they? How do you rank them? Yeah, I think there. I think there. Are, there's there's the big four in this tournament. But by big four, I don't mean Djokovic, Federer, uh, Nadal, and uh, and Murray. But rather, I mean Djokovic, the big one, and the other three people who are challenging him. The 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 three that have the best chance at you know beating him, so to speak. And that would be Zverev. Sitsipas and Medvedev. And I'm hoping personally for the for the sake of watching quality tennis to see these four players in the semifinals. Uh, because uh, that would be possibly the best four players at this stage, you know, in, in fall of two at the end of the summer 2021. Uh, that would give the audience the highest quality of tennis in, in the semifinals and then in the finals. So that's uh, th- those are the three players who can challenge him. He's going to, if that, if, if those, um, you know, if that semifinal happens, he's going to have to beat an informed Zverev, probably playing the best tennis of his career. And then in the final, he's going to have to beat the winner of Tsitsipas and Medvedev, whom he's has beaten before in the finals of a major, both, you know, he beat uh, Tsitsipas at Roland Garros and he beat Medvedev at the Australian Open. But nonetheless, that's still, those are still the best challengers against him. You know, there are some one-match wonder players in the draw, but they would have to play Djokovic in the first round or in the second round because they themselves will not get that far. They're not going to make it to the quarterfinals or semifinals. They're very unreliable in that sense. And they're not in Djokovic's section. So uh, I I think, uh, you know, we're looking at... uh, And they're not either in... uh, in uh, say you know early rounds of uh, of uh, Tsitsipas or Medvedev, so I think uh, you know they're going to be fine. I mean Zverev is playing, for example, Sam Querrey, who can be uh, who can be dangerous. Uh, out of those four, he probably has the toughest first round against Sam Querrey, but I think he'll get past him. And I don't I know there are a lot of Bublik fans out there. I don't think he'll get past the Zverev's uh, little section. Kyle Monfils. Big fan here of the guy, you know, and uh, he's finally catching some form. There's Yannick Sinner right there. I'm not sure that any of them have the game to beat Zverev because they're both baseliners themselves. And Zverev baselines better than them at this point. And I think I just invented the, the, the verb baselining when I said that. But, okay, so, I mean, the one guy there who could, you know, create a surprise is Riley Opelka. Uh, who has a different type of game that that uh, that can give anyone trouble on a given day? But he would have to go all the way to the um, to the quarterfinals to face Zverev. He would have to beat Karenio Busta. He would have to beat the winner of Hachanov and Shapovalov and that section. I'm not sure that he'll make it there. So you know we're looking at. Uh, uh, it would be a surprise for me if. Not if if two of those four players don't reach the semifinals, let alone one. Hmm. All right, so you took some names, and I'm going to focus on the two last two names, uh, Opelka. But I'll talk about Shapovalov first. Um, mm-hmm. Made his breakthrough semis 
at Wimbledon, you know, competed very hard with Djokovic, had looks in almost every set to, mm -hmm. you know, and first, especially, you know, you could say that was a set that slipped away. Uh, even Djokovic said later on in the press conference, right, you know, he was, he, he created more scoreboard opportunities. So no love for him. I mean, do you think US Open is not a surface where he can uh, advance? Or are you looking at the last four matches he's lost, including the Wimbledon semifinals? Is he coming no. undermatched? Or what is your report card for him? No, no, I, I, I do. Th I, I, I'm a big, you know, Dennis fan myself, and and his his game is improving. Here's what, here's the key that people have to keep in mind when they're looking at Shapovalov. When if you're a Shapovalov fan or if you're a Shapovalov follower, you have to accept that he's going to have some bad tournaments and he's going to have some spectacular tournaments. You have to accept that in a match he's going to have a bad streak of a few games, but then he's going to play phenomenal tennis for a set, maybe. And you also have to accept the fact that during a year, he's going to have bad showings and great showings. And if you look at his, you know, yearly activity over the last three or four years, what you're going to find is not someone whose graph, whose, whose uh, progress graph goes straight forward up. His progress graph goes straight up and then a little bit of a dip. And another up that brings it higher than the previous up, but then another dip again. But then a, a, another rise that brings it further up. So his, his graph yeah. is going up, Sakib. It's just not a steady up. And for a Shapovalov fan, I guess that's frustrating. But maybe but, that's uh, how the career is going to pan out. Exactly. Right? He's, he's I mean, that, those... you know, he's, the, the guy is improving. He's better, yeah. than, he's better than two years ago. He's far better than four years ago. And you just have to get used to that if you're a Shapovalov fan. So can he all of a sudden, you know, go to the semis here? Yes, he can. Of course, you know, he's, 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 got, a, he's got a very explosive game. He does can have a he... winning record against Zverev. I mean, again, they haven't played mm -hmm. till very recently. Zverev has been, you know, reaching new heights with his baseline game. But Shapovalov in form can definitely trouble uh, the German. Yeah. So, I mean, it, the, 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 the trouble with Shapovalov is, and I actually like his draw in the first two rounds. I think he can get to the third round, but then he's got to he's got to face Hachinov, then the winner of Opelka Karenio Busta, then comes Zverev. That's a tough road. I mean, Shapovalov's got a tough road to the semifinals, but no, he can do it. I, I I certainly I'll never lose my faith in his ability to have a, a phenomenal tournament out of nowhere, because right, that's so. that's that's the trend with him, you know. Yeah, I'm sure Shapovalov fans will be happy. And, and he, you're right, he's definitely made tremendous strides. And the match against Nadal in Rome, I think, was uh, the make-believe match, right? He could play that aggressive uh, right. baseline coming to the net. That reminded me of, like, you know, the Boris Becker-Edberg season when they would play a good week on clay. And Nadal's ultimate standard, right? You could play that kind of offensive game in Rome and stay close and come within a couple of points. Correct. I think you, you were right, yeah. All right, so Opelka. Uh, I think one of the McEnroe brothers post Wimbledon said that this is a guy who's going to break the U.S. drought at a major. I mean, uh, everybody says he's a better version of Isner. He can had an explosive forehand, uh, still pretty young. Uh, how, how do you see him? You see him as a major contender, not this year, but you know, are you buying? Are you buying the overall package? No, I'm not buying the major contender narrative, but I am buying the uh, the, the narrative where he can be better than Isner. Yes. Uh, he he moves better than Isner, in my, uh, I think, and uh, he's got just as big a serve. And uh, yeah, I mean, when they're when his career, 
I'll be super, I'm, I'm curious to see where his career is going to be in five or six years. Yes, I do think he can make runs in big tournaments, including the majors. I don't think he's a contender to win a major, at least not yet. Mm. All right. Uh, fair enough. I mean, uh, I think he can, I mean, post, uh, post Djokovic years, right? Uh, I think uh, this guy is definitely quarters of semis material. Not every well, time, I, but no, I think no, he, right. he, yeah, right. he can put, put a run, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah, P Mac and Johnny Mac or whoever he said he moves it. very well for his size. I'm, I'm actually I cannot believe this does not get mentioned more often. He for his size, if you ever see the guy live and stand next to him, you would never imagine that he moves as well as he does in on the court. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean the 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 closer I've seen him is in Newport. He was I think walking down the street and I was trying to find parking, but yeah, that didn't say much about his movement. Hopefully. I'll see him play live one day. Uh, so let, let's roll back a couple of minutes ago when we we're talking about the other three, the challengers. So right now, the bookmakers have Medvedev, then Zverev, then Tsitsipas. Uh, of course, all three of them are pretty close in becoming elite players. They're already right up there. And, you know, it won't be a surprise if one of these three start winning majors soon, or all three start winning majors soon. So l- taking stock of the Cincinnati tournament and the latest power rankings, who do you think is the biggest threat to Djokovic out of the three? Of the three, I think Zverev is the biggest threat More to than Djokovic. Medvedev? Even yes, though... yes. No, I do because uh, Medvedev, um, I think, will end up having the same situation with Djokovic that he did at the Australian Open unless he, he commits to an extra dimension in his game. He's not going to beat Djokovic from the baseline. The, 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 and, and, you know, I'm, and I'll stand by this until he actually proves me wrong. And that's what he tried to do at the Australian Open. He put forth his, uh, some of his best version at some points in the first two sets. And Djokovic answered the bell every single time. And, and Medvedev completely ran out of answers and gas uh, by, the, by the time the third set came around. He cannot be hitting balls from inside the baseline, two meters behind the service line, and then shuffle back to the baseline to re-engage in the rally. That's that's like signing a a, a, a death contract against uh, Djokovic, you know, in terms of winning but, but the match or said, losing the match. But you also told me, Murda, I remember in Australia, Djokovic is at the sublime level, right, in that final in Melbourne. Yes. So yes. does that apply if Djokovic is below his best? Does Medvedev have a chance, or no, it's, no, it's you're right. like a, no, no, I'm asking, is it a matchup too far for Daniel? No, no, you you are correct. That's that's a good nuance that needs to be underlined. No, of course, you know, if if Djokovic is not at his best. Medvedev and Tsitsipas and Zverev are guys that can beat him. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that by the time Djokovic reaches the semifinals, he will be at least at 90%, if not 100%. And, um, and if Medvedev has to face him, he's going to have to do a little bit more than he did in the Australian Open finals. And uh, he's going to have to go out of his comfort zone a little bit and hope that Djokovic, you know, because look, even in that Australian Open final, uh, Sakib, it felt to me like if Medvedev did win the first set, that Djokovic was still going to come back and win the match. Kind of like what you were saying earlier, correct? So, um, so no, to answer your question, of course, no. If Djokovic is at, at 70% uh, of his uh, capacity, for example, and you know, when I say 70%, it's just a number, correct? But just to, this is kind of give an idea in the imagination of people. Uh, as at 70% of his full capacity, you know, I'm not sure that he'll reach the final to begin with because Zverev with the form that he's got, 
if he reaches the semifinal, can take him out. But I don't think, I think, I don't remember Djokovic being at 70% in a major final recently or a semifinal. Do you? I mean, no. I don't. So, yeah. And I would even add an X, you know, like a math formula. There's something else will kick in because, you know, he, he, he finds ways to win matches again. You know, that's, that's become a strength that really there's no IBM statistic for it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, you know, have called it luck or whatever. But again, it cannot be happening to the same guy you know, for close to a decade, you know, like... No, I'd, 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 I'd question the knowledge of uh, those people, the, the tennis knowledge of those people who call it luck. It's, it's, it's not even close. Because yeah. the 40, 15, 40, 30 points, you know, like he just goes in a, you know, you can call it lockdown mode, you can call it safe tennis, you can mm-hmm. call, call, you know, like he's taking his chances, but he wins those matches, he wins those points. Yes, so, yes. But until someone beats him, you know, that's why we play the sport, right? So, exactly. again, you know, there's always a chance. So... We've covered like all the big names. I want to ask you about Casper Ruud. The guy has made some tremendous strides, had a disappointing loss to Davidovich Fokina at Roland Garros, but then wins three clay court tournaments, uh, you know, after Wimbledon, uh, and also played, I think, a semifinal or quarterfinal against Zverev in Cincinnati. So he's done the heavy lifting. He's done some improvement on hard courts as well. Uh, what's your report card on him, Murd? I mean, a legit top tenner? Uh, someone? Uh, yes. Can we lock him as a... Long-term resident? <laughs> I mean, I don't know about long-term resident, but yes. Yeah, I mean, I think we can actually. You know, he's he's shown this year that he can play on a lot of surfaces, actually. He's not just a one-surface guy either. He's, he's had the results. And he's one of those guys who who has climbed up the rankings slowly. In other words, he's, he's getting, you know, he's kind of, he reaches a stage and he stays there. He normalizes that stage. He marinates in it. And then takes the next step further up and then takes the next step further up, gets better and better wins, beats better and better players on different surfaces. And so, yes, no, I, I think he's got a chance to, to go far here. You know, he's, he's, got, he's in a section of the draw where he's going to have to play. OK, he's got Songa first round, right? I mean, OK, Songa is a big name, but I, I, I think Rudy's is going to go uh, past that section anyway. And then he's got Diego Schwarzman and John Isner, you know, a little bit later in the third. So, you know, for him to reach the quarterfinals from that little section is not far out of the question. He's certainly my pick. I have him up there in my bracket. And, uh, and then when he reaches the quarterfinals, he would have to play Medvedev or someone else who upset him from his section of the draw. You know, there's also Grigor Dimitrov, who once in a while, does something great in majors, you know, like reach the semifinals. So, you know, there's, there's that guy too, you know, you know, where, where Medvedev is. I think Medvedev could have a tough test there, but no, could cut to come back to root. Um, uh, I have him in the quarterfinals. I actually put him up there without thinking much when I saw that section of the draw. Yeah. He, he's been pretty impressive. And again, you know, there's no such thing as clay court specialists, hardcore specialists these days. It's a lot of people, you know, were accusing, that, you know, he's a clay court guy not too long ago, but now this uh, recent U.S. hard court summer performances yeah. were, were, you know, something very encouraging if you if you believe in Casper Ruud. So, yeah, that's uh, I, I think that's a safe pick. A quick word on Sangha. This very well could be, again, not putting words out there, could be, is it his last year? I don't know. I mean, he's only won one match this year, and that too was sometime in January or February. He's lost eight matches in a row, I think. Uh, yeah, it's a shame to say like how he's been struggling with health concerns over the years and career, even at his peak, 
a lot of injury intervention. Uh, any any Sangha memory at the Open? I mean, what do you remember? His I know he's done really well at French Open and Wimbledon. What do you recall as some of the Sangha moments from the U.S. Open? Oh gosh, I don't. <laughs> uh, I don't, uh, Saki. I, I can't recall any special Sangha moments from the Open. Uh, I think yeah, I know that he reached. The, I, think, I think I think he's. I think he reached the quarterfinals once or twice uh, in, at, at the U.S. Uh, at the U.S. Open. But uh, you know, I think his strongest year was what in 2010 or 2011. Songa's yeah. strongest year, yeah, and so. uh, and I think he might have reached the quarterfinals that year, or was it the year after? I can't remember. But yeah, anyway. I think he lost to Federer. Yeah, I think fourth round, same year when he beat Federer at Wimbledon. He okay. lost to Federer in straight sets. Okay, the, so and, yeah. that was in the fourth round. Okay, so you see. Um, here's another victim of the of the big three or big four however you want to call it right his best years yet he got stopped by by um Djokovic or Federer or Nadal or Murray or possibly Murray yes so um yeah I mean he's I but not at the U.S. Open I'm, my the, the special matches that he's played in the majors are all in my mind I can name immediately a couple from the Australian Open I can name one from Wimbledon I can name a couple from the French Open. Yeah, exactly. But I, ca- I cannot name one from uh, US Open that stands out in my mind. Yeah, US Open has been his weakest slam, I think it's fair to mm-hmm. say. All right, so let's uh, let's talk about any section you want to weigh in for a few minutes. Is there a section of death here? Yeah, or, or a quarter or like a 16 where, you know, the matchups are loaded and it can change, you know, on a dime turn, you know, like the... What's your favorite section here? Yes, uh, Saki, but a section of the draw could change wherever Jem Ilkel of Turkey lands as a qualifier. <laughs> that, that could change a lot. <laughs> no, I just wanted to insert that in because uh, he's a friend of mine, a great guy, and he became today the second uh, Turkish man ever to reach the, the, uh, the main draw of a major. And uh, so I wish him the best. And that's why I kind of wanted to stick that joke in there. But, uh, but I hope he, all, I, all I can hope for him or for us that uh, he doesn't face Novak Djokovic because Djokovic is going to take a qualifier. So yeah, <laughs> we'll see. But then again, he can say that he played against the best player in the world in Arthur Ashe. So, Absolutely. but okay. To, so to answer your question though, I, um, the, 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 the matchup that interests me uh, is if they both make it that far, in other words, they each have to win two matches to make it that far, is Sinner versus Monfils. Because Monfils is as seasoned as you get for a major player, play, you know, a three out of five player. And Yannick Sinner is as good as it gets in terms of someone who just came into the scene and who's actually backing up the results that he's had. And, the, and you got Monfils, who's very athletic from far behind the baseline. And you got Sinner, who's also an excellent baseliner, but who's a little bit more aggressive, who looks to finish the point. That could be a great baseline duel at the U.S. Open. I'm not sure how good it would be at the French Open or on a slow surface, but I think at the U.S. Open, in terms of a baseline duel, that could be a spectacular match. So I'm looking forward to that, to that matchup, plus that section anyway. You know, we talked about that section. No, that's a good call-up. Yeah, so that's uh, I, I like that section a lot, and uh, and and other than that, there are some um, players whose whose you know whose performances I'm curious about. I don't think they'll go far, but you know, there's the um, there's Zachary Svida, the junior national champion. I'm not sure how he's. I'd like to watch him. 
you know, Mikhail Imer is in the semifinals of Winston-Salem. He's, he's got to play here. Um, Alexei Poprin, who just started working with Craig O'Shaughnessy. So I want to see how he does. And Grigor Dimitrov is someone that I want to see how he does also. And then there's that uh, little section with, um, you know, the, a name that we haven't talked about at all is Andrei Rublev. And, um, you know, Rublev probably is the fifth name that I put behind the, the four that we mentioned before. Novak at the top, the three challengers, and Rublev right below them. I know that Rublev fans will be disappointed to hear that uh, that I that I'm will be disappointed at me for saying that uh, Rublev is a step behind those guys. But uh, yeah, for now, in, for now, I think he is. He's um, he's he's got to prove. He's got to show more uh, with his uh, baseline game, or, or or actually, he's got to show more than just his baseline game and his serve to to reach the final day of a major mm. all right so it's a good good transition point because me and damien you know who was in the podcast with you and i just before the pandemic last year we were talking you know not talking we had a mini thread on twitter uh how he put a very good stat that rublev against medvedev of course he beats medvedev that match before that he said he's between medvedev and zverev he's 0 and 11 he's zero sets one yeah. So, and he said he called him one dimensional, which I think is pretty accurate the way, you know, some of these mm-hmm. power baseliners are. But then I said, yes. OK, that's fine. But with his power baseline, he's troubled team and Sitsipas a lot more. So what gives what is not meeting the eye here? In well, terms of matchups, it? like he's right, but he's troubling those one hand. Is it just the one hand part that's getting or he's just running into a better version of himself in Zverev and Medvedev? Yes, Zverev and Medvedev are phenomenal baseliners counter punchers good movers at the baseline and and they don't miss much you know Sitsipas is as good as he's at the baseline Sitsipas likes to be in control of the point you know he likes to step inside the baseline be in control of the point he wants to be the one directing traffic in 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 the in the patterns of the rally and uh Rublev is doesn't allow that because Rublev hits the ball deep hard to the corners moves well and puts a lot of pressure on the opponent. Medvedev handles pressure well. And Zverev handles pressure well too. When the balls you know, hit hard and they have to play the scrambler's role. But uh, Tsitsipas, for example, does not handle that as well as the others. And Tsitsipas also has a bit of a problem with returns, right? He doesn't return as well as the other two guys. And uh, Rub- one of Rublev's uh, big weapons is his serve. So that I, I totally understand that Tsitsipas has a bit more problem with Rublev than... Uh, than Medvedev and uh, and uh, Zverev do. Uh, I totally understand that. So a Matt Zemek type question, how far in his evolution arc is uh, Andre Rublev? With this frame, he hits a ball, probably the biggest forehand along with Berrettini. You know? So uh, uh, is he a me, slam contender in a couple of years? He could be a slam contender if he develops further his transition game, yes. What is that again? again transition game as in, as in getting the short ball, Hitting it and not and not just going for the winner or hitting the ball and staying back and watching to see if his ball is going to be a winner, but actually follow it behind to the net and come to the net and show the opponent that you are willing to approach the net behind behind your good shots and and develop your volleys enough so that you can you can finish it off. Other than with a big shot from the baseline, that's uh, you know develop his transition game to become a better all court player. I would say I would say the same for Medvedev. By the way, that would be one area of his game that he would need to improve. 
and again, <laughs> there's a lot of people who call Medvedev genius and variety. I, I sometimes <laughs> I, I, I fail to see that again. And I be, I believe in Daniel Medvedev, but I don't. Are you, see... are you baiting me, uh, Sakim, to tell the truth here? Are you baiting me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because uh, I've because I've said this before. Right? It's all I find that a little bit overrated. I, I do think he's a smart guy, but he's played some crucial matches, big stage matches over the last two or three years. I can name three, four, four of them from the top of my head where he stuck with the losing game plan and ended up losing the match actually, and uh, and he and he refused to try. He refused. He refused to try, or if he refused to put into place, implement the necessary changes to change the flow of the match, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and, and it's in, and in a couple of other matches, he did it, but he did it late, a set late or one break too late. Um, so, you know, yeah, he's a very smart guy. I'm not sure that he's a genius though. I think he sells himself very well, you know, listening to him and, and uh, listening to him in the press conferences and the way he responds to questions, he's very witty. And I think people tend to conflate a little bit his personality and, and the way he handles uh, interviews and, and uh, on stage in front of the microphone with his ability to, to use that wit on the court. He's smart, but I, I wouldn't call him a genius, no. Okay. So that one's in the books. Uh, I think again, I, I think I'm in the minority though, but 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 no, I wouldn't call him a genius. No, that's that's two of us. So in, in this show, that counts for majority. You know, two zero. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, let's talk. Let's spare a thought for Dominic team. I think first defending champion since Rafael Nadal in 2013, who's not going to be defending his uh, U.S. Open title. Hopefully, he gets better soon. And this was supposed to be his time, right? He was supposed to mix it up with Djokovic. He was supposed to take on Nadal and these guys, right? The top guys. And uh, what happened with him, with the bubbles and the injuries, you know, uh, again, you know, mental health. Uh, we just wish Dominic team comes back full force because the tour is better off when he's hitting that, you know, the forehand and ripping that, you know, backhand. So For sure. Uh, okay, let's take a quick peek on uh, Sebastian Corda. You and I talked about him in February when he was, I think, playing Delray. Uh, bit, bit of divided uh, opinions on Twitter. Uh, a lot of people think, you know, the Americans are always trying to push the narrative. I see him, uh, <laughs> an American playing a European's game. What does Merch see and how real is this kid? And, you know, you know can, we see, can we put him into, like, say, top 15, top 10 in a couple of years? Yeah, no, I like his game. I'm high on him. I do believe that, uh, you know, again, going back earlier to what you said, McEnroe said on TV, uh, I think he's the best American prospect. Uh, I still believe that. I believe that. I said that last year, too. And uh, and if you look at his results, uh, Sakib, yes, okay, he hasn't maybe created wonders, but he's lost a very close match in the quarterfinals to, to in Halle, to Umbar, 6-4 in the third. Then he's lost a very close match in the round of 16 at Wimbledon to Hachanov, 10-8 in the fifth. Then he moved on to Washington uh, Open, and he lost to Yannick to Sinner, 7-6, 7-6 in two tiebreakers after beating Pospisil in the first round. And in Cincinnati, he lost to Tsitsipas, 7-6, 6-3, a very close first set. And here he is at the U.S. Open. And when I when I counted just those losses. It, it, those were not first round last losses. You know, he advanced. 
So, you know, you're looking at a guy who suffered only very close losses against very solid opponents. Yes, I, you know, I, I am expecting him to have another breakthrough somewhere else and, and, uh, and explode uh, in terms of, uh, you know, getting some um, uh, valuable wins. And uh, I wouldn't count him out. Uh, I think, uh, you know, in the, the I'm, I'm trying to, he's in the draw playing Basilashvili first round, I think. He's at a tough section because he's got to beat Basilashvili. Then he's going to play probably Karen Yobusta. And then he's got to play Opelka. So that's an incredibly tough section of the draw. But uh, if you ask me, oh gosh, that's a tough section of the draw. Poor Korda. Um, I'm, not, I'm not ready to jump on that boat either. You know, I think he does have a chance to come out of there. He's got he's got a lot of potential. So, no, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of no, Porter. No, that he's, but he's at a tough section of the draw here. No, that question was a long-term vision. Yeah, this open, nothing is expected. He can win a couple of rounds. That'll be more than enough, I think, for his confidence. Because, yeah, his game is developing. And pretty soon, you know, you become a regular citizen of the tour. People figure you out. And then you start figuring them out. So, yeah, I think we are here for the long ride here. But no, he, but I wouldn't call... Look, if somebody wants to pick this guy a dark horse to come out of that quarter of the draw, which is a very tough quarter. Okay. Not, uh, and, and when I say that, I mean like none of the top four guys we just talked about are there, nor is Rublev, but there's Karen Yubusta, there's Opelka, there's Hachinov and Shapovalov. From that section, if somebody wants to pick Korda as a dark horse and come forward, I'll, I'll, I'll say that my power to you. I hope it does take place. Yeah. I mean, uh... I haven't studied it as closely, uh, so I'm going to rely on your expertise. Uh, mm-hmm. Last guy I want to throw out there is Hugo Umber. Uh, he's looked very good, but he hasn't had the deep runs. So is it a buy stock or sell or hold? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a hold because once again, it's one of these players who can, for one or two matches, create wonders and, and beat some players. But uh, you just don't expect that player to perform that way over five sets, over three matches, four matches. And, uh, and reach far, you know, so I don't know how he's going to do here. He's going to have to, you know, he's in Tsitsipas' section and he's going to have to face Tsitsipas before the quarterfinals, if, it, if all goes according to plan, according to seedings. Um, you know, I don't know, you know, he's, he's, there's also Christian Garin in his section. I don't think, you know, I think he can get past Garin, but uh, I don't think he can get past Tsitsipas and uh well, let's first even see if he gets to the to the round to the, to the fourth round. He's going to have to play. He's going to have to win three matches. You know, the first match is against a qualifier. We don't know who that is, but uh, we'll find out a lot more then. Sure. All right. So let's get to the business end of this. Uh, the big four. We already talked about uh, uh, Djokovic and Zverev. Uh, any chance anyone can disrupt uh, Medvedev Tsitsipas semifinal? Any any short list of players? I don't think anyone can disrupt Medvedev from reaching the semifinals unless Dimitrov does it. I don't think anyone can stop uh, Tsitsipas from reaching the semifinals unless Rublev does it. And uh, I don't think anyone can stop Zverev from reaching the semifinals. And I don't think anyone can stop Djokovic from reaching the semifinals. And notice I didn't use unless XYZ does it in the last two. In other words, I'm expecting... Zverev and Djokovic to reach the semifinals. Okay, that'll be the semifinal uh, everybody looks forward to. Uh, there should be a special podcast on your faith on Dimitrov. Again, you know, he's come good a lot of times, but I just want to, you know, do a, a special 15 minutes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> Why don't you no, sell that stuff? Oh, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to deny that uh, 
looking back at his career that if, you know, eight or nine years ago, I would have thought he would have done more by now. I'm not going to deny that. Yes. <laughs> no, no, I know you don't play favorites, but I've yeah. seen you stick with certain players and other players in Shikori. We didn't talk about him, but it looks like, you know, he's in Djokovic section. So, and, mm-hmm. you know, he probably cannot be Djokovic, you know, anyway, no. even swimming, yeah. horse riding, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So we covered quite a lot. Is Djokovic, uh, again, I don't know if you and Matt did predictions for the whole tournament. Uh, uh, are we going to go there or let's talk about the retro decade of 90s? No, Djokovic is the best uh, is the best candidate for the title, without a doubt. All right, so that's Merger Tunga. And now let's talk about some history. Uh, so Mert, again, you know, let's talk 90s. We did a couple of uh, retro podcasts. So what, is some of the, uh, what are some of the best US Open moments or some of the surprising moments that, that stay with you? It doesn't have to be Super Saturday or Sunday or the winning tournaments. I mean, anything that stands out you want to share with the listenership? Um, boy, that's, uh, let's see, maybe 1996 US Open, was it the 1996 US Open when Sampras beat Korecha yep. in that, uh, in that thrilling quarterfinals, I believe. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. The, the, they played a quarterfinals where, you know, Sampras started, uh, thrown up, I believe. Yeah. And Korech ended up double faulting in the in the finals too. Because here's here's why I remember that match so clearly. Uh, because I remember uh, that uh, that uh, in the mid-90s for a couple of years, I had a very busy life in terms of co- coaching college tennis. And I just got married and it was a very busy time. And I remember losing track of... Uh, of the of what's happening in the tennis world for a, for a period of about 16 months i didn't get to watch a full match for almost all that year which is an, an unheard of me for my lifetime wow. and uh, yeah like a full match from beginning to end and i remember watching that match from beginning to the end from the first point to the to the last one which i usually like to do rather than jumping from match to match and uh that match kind of returned me in other words you know, beckoned me to say, Mert, what have you been doing for the last 16 months? You need to get your butt to the couch, uh, grab something to drink and, 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 you know, watch a match from beginning to end again. And uh, so that's that, that, you know, I remember that uh, on a personal level, not only because it's a fabulous match, but also because it was, uh, you know, it was, it was me kind of, it's the match that brought me back into, into the love of watching a full match from beginning to the end once again yeah, that's, that's so, quite a memory yeah. and i think that was also second year in a row that Korecha lost a heartbreaking five setter in 95 he lost i think a night match to agassi where yes. Agassi went for a no look i think he chased a lob and then he hit an overhead while you know facing that's you know, his correct. back towards the opponent yeah yes and in sakib there's also uh, a match that i have to mention okay i have to mention because we we actually just talked about uh, uh, set quarter, right? And what was it? Um, was it in 1997 where Sampras yep. and Corda played that yep. incredible match? I was going to go there, remember. but yeah, thanks for stealing my thunder. Yeah, that's. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm no, sorry, no, no, that's but, fine. Go ahead. Go ahead but 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 I, but I remember the level in the fifth set in that match was insane. Out of out of this world, and I think Sampras went up three love in that fifth set. 
and Corda came back or Corda went up three love. Sampras came back and Corda got the break again. And they went to the, to, to the tiebreaker in the fifth set and Corda ended up winning. And I remember watching that match and I cannot believe these guys are hitting the ball this hard and are not framing shots more often. You know, you, I was like, I would expect players hitting shots and the ball just being, you know, hitting the frame and going up, up to the stands. That's how hard they were swinging. And they were, and ball, and that was that's when U.S. Open surface was quite fast, and both players had these short back swings, and they yeah. were just you know that's using each other's pace. Yeah, that's the first year yeah. of Alterash because yeah. that's '96 of the last Lewis Armstrong final. That's correct. Yeah. Yes, yes. No, again, and that's crazy because in '97 uh, Wimbledon, Corda and Sampras also played a great quarterfinal. I think, or maybe a manic Monday match. That's correct. Yes, where Sampras yes. won six three in the fifth. Mm-hmm. And uh, Corda got him back. And, uh, you know, it's funny, like those two U.S. Open 97 and the one I had in mind was 94, where mm-hmm. Sampras was the best player. But then there was this, you know, monumental upset, Corda in 97 and Hemi Yezaga in 94. And, yes. you know, that gave the path for Agassi to win the title. You know, mm-hmm. Agassi probably could have won it if Sampras played, but Sampras was on a different level. And Hemi Yezaga is another guy who's beaten Sampras twice at the Open and before... Yeah. I mean, any young listeners before Diego Schwartzman, he was the guy, you know, the short guy who could pack a punch. He could hit a <laughs> glorious backhand. And yeah, uh, yeah I think he, he's one guy. Check out the highlights. You know, I'm trying to get him in the podcast. But I think, yeah, I, I woke up to that match. That was my last US Open in India in 94. And I woke up in the morning and I couldn't, couldn't believe that he had beaten uh, Sampras. I went to bed and I think they were like one set all or something, if my memory serves me right. And next morning, I'm checking the scores, and I say, "Okay, this is <laughs> this is unbelievable." And Isaga is one of those guys. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, those are like Isaga and Korda, like some special memories, Korecha. So tune into those highlights if you can. And thank you for listening. This is a pleasure having Mert back talk tennis. Uh, brings out the best. Thank you, Saki. Both me and Matt, and hopefully we can bring you in a couple of uh, Twitter spaces if time permits. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everyone. And we'll be back with another podcast at the end of the Open. Enjoy the tennis that's coming our way. Bye for now.